we're in our Bible study on Ephesians called The Riches of Grace, and it's teaching number 25, The Breastplate of Righteousness. So we're going to start by reading Ephesians 6, 11 through 14, which says, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Tonight, we're going to talk about the breastplate of righteousness. And there's two things for us to remember as we discuss the breastplate of righteousness. The first thing we want to remember is Satan is our enemy. He's against us. So the verses that we just read talked about when the day of evil comes, the spiritual forces of Satan that are against us. So Satan is against every good thing that God wants to do in our lives. Satan is against every good thing that the gospel brings to our lives. He's against us. Number two, Satan's weapons are lies. He attacks us. So Satan is against us. He's against every good thing God wants to do in us. He's against every good thing God wants to do through us. He's against the gospel of grace that changes us. His weapons that attack us are lies. Last week, we looked at the belt of truth. So understanding truth is what counteracts his lies. So Satan is our enemy. He's against us. Satan's weapons are lies. He attacks us. Satan lies to us about God, life, our relationships, our choices, our worth, our value, our identity, our past, our future. He lies to us about our salvation. One of the main areas Satan lies to us about is a believer standing before God. Let's look at some of Satan's lies as it relates to our standing before God. How does God view us? How does God see us? His first lie, lie number one, is you're not right with God. Look at the sins in your life. What he'll get us to do is focus on our sins. And he'll tell us because of the sins in your life, you're not right with God. Satan will never point us to the cross. He never points us to the place where our sins were nailed to the cross or where, where Jesus nailed our sins to the cross. He never points us to the finished work of Christ. That's where the Holy Spirit wants to point us. Satan's always going to point us to our sins, and he's going to say, hey, because of the sins in your life, you're not right with God. You're not accepted by God. Something's wrong between you and God because of the sins in your life. Lie number two, Satan will tell us, is you're not accepted by God because of the sins in your life. Lie number three, you're not forgiven by God. Your sins are too many and they're too messy. Lie number four, you can't be used by God. Your sins are too many and too messy. Lie number five, God loves you, but he's disappointed in you. Lie number six, you've ruined your life because of your sins. Lie number seven, you're, you're forgiven, but God's frustrated with you and you don't have a future. Your past has ruined your present. Your past has ruined your future. Lie number eight, and this is the one I believe for several years that kept me in, in bondage, is you're out of fellowship with God because of sins in your life. You're out of fellowship. You need to make sure all your sins are confessed. You need to keep a short account on your sins. I was so preoccupied with sins for about five years in my life, 
because I'd been taught that unconfessed sin leads to being out of fellowship with God. Unconfessed sins creates an obstacle between you and God. And so in my mind, I thought I was always out of fellowship with God and he was disappointed with me, disgusted with me. And so I'd believe that satanic lie that because of sins, I was out of fellowship with God. Lie number nine, Satan will throw our way is through the practice of religious activity and morality. You will have to earn your way back into a right standing with God. That's what we see with the prodigal when he came back from the pig pen back home and the father ran to him. The prodigal was convinced that he would have to earn his way back into the father's heart and earn his way back into the father's home. That grace wasn't enough. The unconditional love of the father wasn't enough. The unmerited kindness of the father wasn't enough. The unlimited forgiveness of the father wasn't enough. That he thought he was going to have to work his way back into the father's heart and back into the father's home. But what he discovered when grace was poured upon him by the father is you can't work your way back into grace. If you can work your way into grace, then it's not grace. Grace is free. Grace is full and grace is for everyone, no matter what pig pen we've been in or currently are, are in. It's, it's grace welcomes us and loves us and reaches out and runs to us. Lie number 10, Satan will throw at us. You're not practicing the spiritual disciplines. Therefore, you're not in right standing with God. Nine and 10 was really had me in bondage for about five or six years. I was taught that if you're going to grow in your relationship with God, you need to practice the spiritual disciplines. The spiritual disciplines are the expectations you must meet if you're going to be accepted by God and if you're going to grow in your relationship with God. And when I didn't practice the disciplines, I felt guilty. I felt I fell short of God. I felt God was disappointed with me. And it was just a miserable life for me for about six years. And then finally, somebody shared with me the gospel of grace in 1990. And it's like a breath of fresh air uh, for me. But what are the spiritual disciplines? I'm not sure how many of you guys have been taught the spiritual disciplines have been they've been placed into your life as a believer that this is what you need to do every day in order to grow in your relationship with god spiritual disciplines didn't come to america until the mid-1970s so you really couldn't find a lot about spiritual disciplines in the mid-1970s they came on the scene with a book written by richard foster called The Celebration of the Disciplines. That was in the early to the mid-1970s, and it really, really made its way throughout Christianity, that these disciplines became the way a person relates to God. Jesus was no longer the way a person relates to God. The cross was no longer the way the person relates to God. Christ in you was no longer how you relate to God. The blood of Christ was no longer how a person relates to God. If you want to grow in your relationship with God, I was told, and millions of people have been told this. If you want to grow in your relationship with God, you have to practice the disciplines. I didn't know any better. So when somebody was telling me the spiritual disciplines, they gave me the book that Richard Foster had written, The Celebration of the Disciplines, and I read them. I think he had 12 of them. Google spiritual disciplines when you get to the opportunity. There are so many disciplines out there that we're told to grow in your relationship with God, practice these disciplines. Of course, the first one is make sure you read your Bible every day. When I read my Bible, I felt good. 
when I didn't read my Bible, I felt guilty. And what we were talking about earlier was that the Bible points us to the cross. The Bible points us to the finished work of Christ. The Bible points us to Christ in us. It's all pointing us to the person and to the work of Jesus. If the Bible is a sign that points us to Jesus, I want to go where the sign points me to. I don't want to get uh, fascinated with the sign. Right now I'm living in Johnson City. And if there's a sign that says Johnson City, next exit, the sign is pointing me to Johnson City. To, here's, here's Johnson City, and you can go enjoy and experience Johnson City. Here, here it is. But if I get preoccupied with the sign, I'll never experience what the sign is pointing to. The Bible's pointing to Jesus. The Bible's pointing to the finished work of Christ. The, the Bible's pointing to Christ in us. The Bible's pointing us to knowing God as Father. So if I miss out on what the Bible's pointing to, then I'm going to get consumed with the Bible. I've got to read the Bible every day. I've, that's what I have to do. It's the Bible. But I'm missing out on what the Bible's pointing to, which is what the Pharisees did during Jesus' day. When we read the book of John, Jesus said, hey, you search the scriptures, you study the scriptures, but you miss the point of the scriptures. You miss me. And so I was never explained the Bible. I was never taught the Bible. People would teach from the Bible with a verse here and a verse here and a verse from over here. But nobody ever explained to me the fullness of Scripture and helped me logically understand the flow of Scripture. And when finally somebody did that, it changed my life. So the truth of the Bible, what the Bible pointed to, changed my life. And that's one of my goals is I want, I want to help people understand the Bible. I want to explain the Bible. And I never want people to think, oh, I've got to read the Bible every day. And if I don't, I feel guilty. And if I do, I feel good. Some people, when they see the Bible, they feel immediate guilt. Oh, I haven't read the Bible today. I feel guilty. But once you see the truth of the Bible, of the new covenant, of the fullness of the gospel of grace, then the Bible's transforming. It's the truth of Scripture that transforms us. And remember, the Bible didn't really come on the scene until the 1400s, and then finally it was translated into English. Most believers for a thousand years they didn't, or more than a thousand years, they didn't have a Bible. They didn't have all these spiritual disciplines. All they had was the truth of the new covenant, the truth of the gospel of grace, the truth of the cross. And that's what transformed their lives. So one of the spiritual disciplines that I got in bondage to was make sure you read your Bible every day. When I did, I felt good. When I didn't, I felt bad, but I didn't even understand what I was reading. I was confused. Make sure you pray every day. Make sure and the, with these spiritual disciplines, make sure you have no unconfessed sin in your life or you're out of fellowship with God. Make sure you have daily devotions or quiet times. Make sure you carve out or set aside time for God every day. Make sure you memorize scripture. Make sure you meditate on scripture. Make sure you practice simplicity. Make sure you practice solitude. Make sure you practice self-examination. Make sure you practice contemplation, which is self-examination. Contemplation is really, really having a resurgence today within Christianity. A lot of these spiritual disciplines are, are coming back into churches now at, at a great, great rate. Make sure you witness. Make sure you journal. 
Make sure you're in a group. Make sure you serve. You can go deeper in your relationship with God through spiritual disciplines, we're told. You can't go deeper in your relationship with God without the spiritual disciplines, we're told. You grow spiritually when you practice the spiritual disciplines. Or we're told you can't grow spiritually if you don't practice the spiritual disciplines. If you notice what's missing in all these disciplines is the cross, the blood of Christ, why Jesus went to the cross. There's nothing in here about what Jesus did. And that's what Paul focused people on when he taught. The ascended Jesus revealed to Paul the fullness of what the cross was all about, the fullness of the new covenant. That's why it's in these Pauline letters, Romans and Galatians and Ephesians. If we want to go see what happened at the cross, it's the letters of Paul. And why do the letters of Paul contain what happened at the cross? Because Paul was personally discipled by the ascended Jesus. So that's where we go to learn about what actually happened at the cross. And who is Christ in us? So, and I tell people all the time to look, if somebody wants to practice the spiritual disciplines, I'm by no means saying don't do that. But I also don't want to put that under somebody's, I don't want to make somebody, I don't want to get somebody yoked to that where, boy, I have to do these things if I'm going to grow because I did all those things and I didn't grow. I only grew when somebody finally explained to me what happened at the cross and who Christ was in me. and the explanation of scripture changed my life, not spiritual discipline. So for me, it was spiritual truth that transformed me, not spiritual disciplines that transformed me. Now, what happens if we practice spiritual disciplines? Well, we feel good about our relationship with God if we practice the disciplines. We feel right about our relationship with God if we practice the disciplines. But what happens if we fail to practice the spiritual disciplines? We feel guilty before God. We feel wrong before God. Well, I didn't read my Bible today. I, I think God's disappointed in me because I didn't read the Bible. I don't feel good about my relationship with God because I haven't prayed yet. Something's wrong between me and God until I carve out time for him, until I set aside time for him. I don't feel right about my relationship with God. So when I was practicing these spiritual disciplines, I was consumed with me. I was preoccupied with me and I was miserable. And what I've discovered is when I'm preoccupied with myself, for me, it made me miserable. But when we become preoccupied with whether or not we're practicing the disciplines, and, and I'm going to show you how this works into the breastplate of righteousness soon. When I'm preoccupied with whether or not I'm practicing the disciplines, I'm going to be consumed with myself, which is going to lead to one of two things. I'm either going to become very prideful, look at me, I read my Bible today. Look at me. I prayed today. Look at me. I'm serving on a ministry team. Look at me. I'm in a small group. Uh, look at me. I'm memorizing scripture. Look at me. I'm meditating on scripture. We, we can easily become prideful in spiritual disciplines or we can become pitiful with spiritual disciplines. Look at me. I failed to read my Bible. Look at me. I'm not praying enough. My prayer life isn't good enough. Look at me, I'm not memorizing scripture and I'm not meditating on scripture. Look at me, I'm really not witnessing like I ought to be witnessing. I'm not journaling like I should be journaling in a journal. And I was told, hey, you need to journal. And I started journaling. And I had about a stack of 10 journals where I was constantly journaling about my 
poor performance as a Christian, my inability to measure up to who I thought God wanted me to be and was expecting me to be. And when the gospel of grace came and was presented to me, and I began to study it in scripture to see if what this person was telling me was biblically accurate, I began to see the gospel of grace. I went through one time and I counted the word grace or the word charis in scripture. And I noticed that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the word charis is used seven times. And they're all in reference to how graceful of a person Jesus was, exception, with the exception of one other time. But grace or charis is used 150 times after the cross, seven times before, 150 times. And I started studying this word grace, and, and it literally began to change my life. And so what I did with my journals is I threw every one of them away. I said, I'm through focusing on Brad. I'm through journaling on how, how much of a loser Christian I am. Oh, God, I'm so sorry in my journal. I, I'm, please forgive me for I'm going to try to do better next time. And I, I just threw all that away. And I began to renew my mind, not with my failure, but with the success of the cross. And as I began focusing on the success of the cross, something happened inside of me. I began changing. Transformation began to come. Joy began to come. But for, for a long time, I felt guilty when I didn't practice the disciplines. I think that's a satanic lie that is, that is produced through so many religious systems and so many religious leaders. Now, during the time of Jesus, the Pharisees weighed people down with spiritual disciplines. They weighed people down with expectations they set from God. They, they placed these disciplines among people. Now, remember, the Pharisees were the religious leaders of Jesus's day. They were admired by the people. They were respected by the people. The people would look at the Pharisees and say, wow, if anybody knows God, it's the Pharisees. If anybody knows the law of Moses, it's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. If anybody is spiritual, it's the Pharisees. When Jesus looked at the Pharisees, he had a conversation with them, had many conversations with them, pointing out their religious arrogance. One of the conversations is found in John chapter 8. And in John chapter 8, verse 44, he said, you are of your father, the devil. I always found that a very interesting remark that Jesus made about the Pharisees. Because if you follow the Pharisees around for a day, here's what you're going to find them doing. You're going to find them memorizing scripture, meditating on scripture. You're going to find them reading the Jewish scriptures. Didn't have a Bible back then, but you had Jewish scriptures. You're going to find them studying the scriptures. You're going to find them carving out time for God. You're going to find the Pharisees practicing the spiritual disciplines. Yet in their practice of the spiritual disciplines, they miss spiritual truth. And that's what happened to me. I missed spiritual truth practicing spiritual disciplines. And I'm not saying spiritual disciplines are satanic. I'm just saying Satan wants to get people preoccupied with anything but Jesus and the cross and to get them thinking that, boy, if you're going to be right with God, you have to practice the disciplines. Or if you're going to grow in your relationship with God, you must practice the disciplines. Because when we begin believing it's the disciplines that grow us and it's the disciplines that bring me close to God, then I've, I've eliminated Jesus. I've eliminated the work of Jesus on the cross for our sins. Jesus spoke to the Pharisees and he was in a very religious culture. The Pharisees created this religious culture. 
And Jesus said this to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 4. He says, they, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, are not willing to lift a finger to move them. So the religious system of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they put all these expectations on the shoulders of people. They put all these requirements, and God expects these you to do these spiritual activities, these spiritual disciplines. But they, were, they, they never tried to lift the weight of the disciplines off the shoulders of people, is what Jesus is saying. Hey, they're putting these heavy weights on people, and it's weighing them down. They're not trying to to lead people to freedom. They're putting a full load on people rather than leading people to freedom. Luke 11, 46, Jesus says to the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, he says, woe to you as well, experts in the law. So here's people who studied the law of Moses. Their whole goal was to live according to the law of Moses. Jesus says, woe to you as well, experts in the law, Jesus replied. You weigh men down with heavy burdens but you yourselves will not lift a finger to lighten their load. That tells us a lot about Jesus. Jesus is not about putting heavy loads on people, heavy disciplines on people, heavy expectations on people. Jesus is about lightening people's loads. Jesus is about taking loads away from people to free them up to enjoy a relationship with God as as Father. Look what Jesus says in Matthew 11, 28 through 29. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, why were they burdened, heavy loaded? You're loaded down with this weight, and this weight that you're loaded down with is making you weary. It's wearing you out. It's making you tired. He's talking about spiritual exhaustion here. Spiritual exhaustion. Come to me, all of you who are spiritually exhausted because of the heavy loads the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are placing on you. All right, because remember, Jesus is about lightening people's load, taking these disciplines off, taking these requirements off that religious men and religious leaders place upon people. Jesus is trying to take them off. So he said, come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Most believers have never been taught to rest in Christ or rest in the finished work of Christ. They're taught, hey, come to Jesus in your weariness of life, but not in your weariness of your spiritual exhaustion. So come to me, all you weary and burden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. What's the yoke of Jesus? The yoke of Jesus is grace. Jesus was full of grace. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. He's calling these people away from the Pharisees. He's calling them away from the teachers of the law. He's calling them away from those who have placed this heavy load upon their backs, their spiritual backs. Here's what you have to do. All right. Jesus says, hey, come away from them and come to me because in me, you're going to find rest for your souls and internal rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and I am humble in heart. You know, that's the only time in the Bible where Jesus says, this is what I'm like. 
Every other time Jesus will describe his identity. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. He's, he, he talks about himself in terms of his identity. This is the only time he says, this is what I'm like. I am gentle and I am humble in heart. So we're yoking ourselves to someone who's gentle and someone who's humble. And if we could put a word on that for I'm gentle and humble in heart, we would put the word grace, a gentleness and a humbleness that Jesus had for people and a love, an unconditional love and a desire to see them set free from the religious system that they were under. So it says, take my yoke of grace. A yoke is I'm joined to something. All right. So he's calling the people away from being yoked to the religious system of the Pharisees. He's calling the people away to being yoked from the religious system of the teachers of the law. He said, hey, come away from them and come to me. And you're going to find grace with me. I mean, think about what did the prostitute find when she came to Jesus? Grace. What did the woman who was caught in adultery find with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who drug her and drug her before Jesus? She found law in them. She found judgment in them. She found condemnation in them. But what did she find with Jesus? She found grace. What did Zacchaeus find with Jesus? He found grace. What did the woman at the well find with Jesus? She found grace. We're, we're joining ourselves to grace when we're joining ourselves to Jesus, all right? Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's an internal rest that comes from joining ourselves to grace, from joining ourselves to Jesus. Jesus is not in us. The Spirit of Christ is not in us saying, Brad, here's the list of disciplines. You need to follow the list. That's not the spirit of Christ. That's the spirit of religion, but it's certainly not the spirit of Christ. The spirit of Jesus in us is always pointing us to the cross of Jesus. The spirit of Jesus in us is pointing us to the new covenant of grace. When we read Hebrews, it talks about the spirit of Jesus. The spirit the Holy Spirit is pointing us to the finished work of Christ, to the new covenant, and to rest, Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 4, to rest in the finished work of Christ. This idea of resting in what I'm resting in the fact that I'm forgiven. I'm resting in the fact that I'm in right relationship with God because of what Jesus has done. I'm resting in the fact that Jesus lives in me and, and I call God Abba Father. I'm resting in the fact that I'm at peace with God and I'm not under any condemnation from God for past sins, for present sins. I'm in, under no condemnation. So we're resting in spiritual truth. We're resting in the truths of the gospel of grace. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus was trying to set people free from religious systems. All right, so we're looking at the words of Jesus in the religious culture he was in. Now he tells a story about a Pharisee who practiced religious activity and morality. If anybody was in right relationship with God, people would look at this Pharisee and say, oh, it's got to be him. So Jesus tells this story in Luke 18, 9 through 14. He says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness. And he's talking about the Pharisees. They were confident in their right standing before God because of their religious activity. 
They were confident in their right standing before God because of their morality. But their confidence was in who? Their confidence was in themselves and their practice of the disciplines. So Jesus tells a story to confront this religious system that they promoted and they were putting on the backs of people. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. So he's confronting self-righteousness of the Pharisees based upon religious activity and morality or spiritual disciplines. Here's the story. Jesus said two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Couldn't get at more contrasting ends of the spectrum here. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulteries. What's he talking about there? Morality. I thank you that my morality is superior to others. And because of my morality, I am confident that I am right with God because of my morality. All right. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulteries, or even like this tax collector. He's a thief, the Pharisee would say. Look at the spiritual disciplines here. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all of I, all that I get. I mean, he could have gone. I read the Jewish scriptures. I meditate on the scriptures. I memorize the scriptures. The Pharisees had something called a phylactery. And the phylactery was, was a, a box that they had and they carried with them that they put all their, their memorized verses from, from Jewish scriptures. Jesus points that out, I want to say in Matthew, maybe Matthew chapter 23, and he criticizes their phylacteries, how proud they were of their memorized scriptures. Jesus, right here, he was pointing out that you can have morality and you can practice spiritual activities, but morality and spiritual activities have nothing to do with your right standing before God. Zero to do. Righteousness doesn't come or right standing or feeling good about my relationship with God or accepted by God doesn't come through my morality or through my practicing of spiritual activities or spiritual disciplines. Let's move on with the story. But the tax collector stood at a distance. So here we have the Pharisee. He goes right into the temple, looks up to God and starts telling him all the good things that he's doing. But the tax collector stood at a distance and the tax collector would not even look up to heaven. But the tax collector beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves, look at me and my morality, look at me and my spiritual disciplines. All those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And all those who humble themselves, man, if morality is going to make me right with God, I don't have a chance. If my spiritual disciplines and me reading the Bible every day makes me acceptable to God, I don't have a chance. All those who humble themselves will be exalted. We don't have to ask for God's mercy. You, you hear this man, he's, he's under the law, he's under the old covenant. And under the law, you would ask for mercy. I remember one time I got pulled over by a police officer 
it was a Sunday morning. I was late. You know, I was going to be preaching that day, get pulled over by the police officer. He comes to me and I'm like, Hey officer, will you have mercy on me? I asked literally use those words. I asked for mercy so that he wouldn't write me a ticket and he'd let me go. And he looked at me and said, no, I'm not having any mercy on you. Here's your ticket. The good thing about us is we don't live on this side of the cross that this man lived on where he asked for mercy. You and I don't ask for mercy. We've been given mercy already. When we read Ephesians chapter two, Paul says, Hey, God has God who is rich in mercy. God has already poured his mercy out on us. God has already poured his grace out on us at the cross. So we don't ask for mercy like this man would. We accept the mercy that God has poured upon us through Christ at the cross. He's already pouring this mercy out. Mercy under the law, your mercy is new every morning. That's not us. We don't live on this, that side of the cross. We live in grace. His, his, his grace is there every moment. His mercy is there every second. It's this mentality that, okay, the mercy of God was new every morning under the law, but under grace, the mercy of God is, is always with us. The, the grace of God, we live in it 24-7, seven days a week. Uh, we, we live and breathe the grace of God. We live and breathe the mercy of God. We live and breathe the kindness of God given to us at the cross. So Jesus said, I, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. I was having a conversation today, and a, and a guy said to me, he said, Brad, shouldn't people have evidence in their lives that they're believers? Shouldn't we be able to look at somebody's life and tell whether or not they're believers in Jesus. You know, if they're reading their Bible, if they're praying, um, if they're living a moral life, can't we say that that person is in right relationship with God? There's evidence there. I'm like, well, I said, that's the mistake that people made during the days of Jesus. Who's right with God? It's the Pharisees. But who did Jesus say wasn't right with God? It was the Pharisees, the one who had the evidence. So on the way home, if somebody said, hey, which one of these two men are in right relationship with God? Is it the Pharisee or is it the tax collector? People would have said, oh, it's got to be the Pharisee because there's evidence in his life. But there's no evidence in this guy's life. When we read Ephesians chapter three, Paul says to the man, Paul writes, hey, tell the person who's been stealing from other people to stop stealing. And to go get a job and to use the money that he makes to help people. There was no evidence in that person's life that Paul writes about that he was a believer. The evidence would tell us he's not a believer because he's stealing from people. But he was a believer in Jesus. He was in process of growing. He was in process of changing. He was in process of transformation. But if we're looking for evidence to see if people are believers or not, we've almost become modern day Pharisees. It's the grace of God that ultimately changes us. And yes, there are choices and decisions that are moral that we want to begin to make and that will eventually will happen within us. So anyway, I just thought that was important that here's a guy who on the outside looks like he's right with God. That's what the word justified means, to be right with God. Here's a guy on the outside. All the external evidence points us to the fact this guy's in right relationship with God. Morality and spiritual disciplines. But he wasn't because he was trusting in who? Himself. 
and his practice of the disciplines and his morality. Whereas this person, this tax collector said, hey, I don't have a chance. If I don't trust in Jesus, I don't have a chance. It's Jesus that makes me right with the Father. It's Jesus that makes me acceptable to the Father or justified. After the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, these loads that were being placed upon people during the days of Jesus continued to be placed upon people by the spiritual leaders in the early book of Acts. Look at what Peter said, Acts 15, 10. Now then, why do you, that's the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, Acts 15, why do you test God by placing on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we or our fathers have been able to bear. So we even see during the days of Jesus, they were placing these spiritual yokes on people. We see after Jesus ascended into heaven, we see these spiritual leaders placing yokes on people. We even see it today, right? Here's what you have to do. Here's the yokes. Acts 15, 9 through 11, continuing this. Now then, why do you test God by placing on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? That yoke in immediate context was the law of Moses and all that went with it. For he, God, purified their hearts, that's the Gentiles, by faith. It's faith that our hearts are cleansed. It's faith that we're made acceptable by God. It's our faith in Jesus that makes us right with God, not the yokes that we practice but the cross that Jesus bore. That's what makes us right with God. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentile, the Gentile believers, a yoke that neither we or our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, placed in right relationship with God, just as they are. So it's grace. That's what we want our focus to be on. You and I are in right relationship with God. And that's what saved means. Saved just isn't, I I was going to spend eternity apart from God, and now I'm going to spend eternity with God. Saved is when we're justified by God, when we're made righteous before God, when we're declared by God to be at peace with him because of what Christ did. Saved is when we're fully forgiven by God. There's a lot to that word saved. And it comes by grace through faith. And we want to live by grace. We want to relate to God always by grace. Paul dealt with placing yokes and burdens upon believers in his letter to the Galatians. What Paul writes in Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ set you free. Remember, we looked at the words of Jesus back in Matthew and Luke. He's wanting to lighten the loads of the believers during his earthly ministry. He's wanting to remove the yokes that were placed upon the backs, the spiritual backs of of people. After Jesus goes to the cross, after he rises from the the grave, he ascends into heaven, and he, he explains the gospel of grace to Paul. Paul's just communicating what Jesus clarified to him. These aren't the words of Paul. These are the words of the ascent of Jesus through Paul. Paul got the revelation of grace from Jesus, the ascended Jesus. Look what Paul says. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Why did Jesus go to the cross? To set you and me free. So Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free from these yokes of bondage, these religious works, this system, these disciplines where I'm trying to earn my way into a right standing with God. Paul says, stand firm then 
and do not let yourselves, look what he says, be burdened again, there's this word again, by a yoke of slavery. Peter used it in Acts 15 twice. Jesus used it several times in Matthew and Luke. And now here we are, Paul's using this yoke of slavery. Again, this is slavery to the law of Moses. But you and I can have a, a slave mentality as well when we allow people to put spiritual disciplines upon us. If you're going to be right with God today, make sure you read your Bible. If you're going to be right with God, make sure you memorize Scripture. If you're going to be right with God, make sure you meditate on Scripture. If you're going to be right with God, make sure you journal. If you're going to be right with God, make sure you carve out time for God. If you're going to be right with God, make sure you set aside time for God. These are all yokes. For me, they were yokes. For some people, they may be very helpful for people. So I don't ever want to say, hey, these are bad. But for me, when people say, hey, you can't grow unless you practice these disciplines, you can't be close to God unless you practice these disciplines, the disciplines become a way a person relates to God rather than what Jesus did on the cross and Christ in us. And I like what Paul says here. He says, do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Paul is giving people the freedom not to be under the control of religious leaders. Just because somebody is a religious leader, just because somebody is a pastor, just because somebody stands on the stage with a Bible in their hands, doesn't mean that they are beyond flaws. Doesn't mean that they're beyond being wrong in what they teach. That's why I tell everybody almost all the time when I teach, don't believe a word that I say. I could be 100% wrong. And I never want to lead anybody in the wrong direction. I, I just want to lead people to the cross of Jesus. That's where I want to take people to, to the blood of Jesus, to the finished work of Christ, to relating to God through what Christ did for them. That, that's my goal. But I, I tell everybody, check everything that I say out, because I never want to put myself or present myself as the one who has the corner on spiritual truth. And you need to listen to me. You need to do what I tell you to do. I never want to do that. I just want to see people go free in their relationship with the Lord and experience the life of Christ in them and the love of Christ for them. But what Paul says is do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery, which means this. Just because somebody is a pastor or a Bible teacher or a senior pastor of a church, or a deacon, or an elder, they have zero authority over you. They have absolutely no authority over your walk with the Lord. Don't give them that authority. You are free to say, you know what? I'm not listening to that pastor anymore. I'm not following that pastor. Or, you know what? I like the pastor, but what he's talking about now, I think he's wrong. And I'm going to, I'm going to just not listen to that. I think he's just because he says it doesn't mean I have to do it. So do not let yourselves, and, and I don't want to let myself be burdened again like I was from 1985 until about 1990, 19, yeah, about 1991, about six years. I'd let myself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery by my, by people who discipled me. They weren't pastors. They weren't Bible teachers. They were the people who discipled me in this Christian organization that I was a part of. They put yokes of slavery on me. 
But in 1991, when my day of freedom came, I have, I'm like, I am not going to let anybody put a yoke of slavery on me anymore. It's what Christ did for me. Jesus, you set me free at the cross. I'm going to relate to the Father based upon what you did, not whether or not I pray today, not whether or not I read my Bible, not whether or not I do what these spiritual leaders are telling me to do. Galatians 1, 6 through 7. Paul said, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ. So you and I have been called by God to live in the grace of Jesus, meaning what he did for us at the cross. And you're turning to a different gospel or a different message, which is really no message at all. It's no gospel at all. Paul said, some people are throwing you into confusion and they're trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. What they were doing in Galatia is these religious teachers were saying, Jesus isn't enough. The cross isn't enough. The blood of Christ isn't enough. The work of Christ isn't enough. You can't relate to God based upon what Jesus did only. You have to relate to God based upon what Jesus did and your obedience to the law of Moses. Now, of course, nobody's for the most part is going to say, hey, you got to relate to God based upon what Jesus did and the law of Moses. People aren't going to say that today, but they are going to say you have to relate to God based upon what Jesus did and having a quiet time, based upon what Jesus did and memorizing scripture, based upon what Jesus did and making sure all your sins are confessed based upon what Jesus did and carving out time for God and self-examination and journaling, all the disciplines. It's Jesus plus the disciplines if you're going to be right with God. And when we do that, we're no longer living in the grace of Jesus. We're living somewhat in grace and somewhat in law. It's me and Jesus. Look in Galatians 3.1. Paul said, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? So you had these teachers from Jerusalem who were highly respected by the people who came in and said, Paul's wrong in his teaching about grace. Paul's not right in his teaching about grace. You don't need to listen to Paul. He's leading you astray. He's leading you away from how to relate to God. You need to get back to the disciplines. You need to get back to self-effort. And they had been bewitched. They had been tricked. Basically, what happened in Galatia is Paul went into the churches of Galatia, and you can read about it in Acts 13, which is the first church that he went into was uh, Pisidian Antioch. It's the first city in Galatia that he went into. And he talks about, in his first recorded message, in the, the, the first city in Galatia that he went into, he talked about that you're justified or you made right with God, you're made righteous before God through faith in Jesus. And not only are you made right with God through faith in Jesus, but you're sanctified or you're made holy by the blood of Jesus and you're completely forgiven of all your sins. And in his message in Acts 13 is he's proclaiming to the people that their sins are forgiven through Christ. And he's asking people to accept the forgiveness that God has provided for them in Jesus. All right. It's a it's a radical message that Paul was presenting and communicating and proclaiming. And if you want to go to Acts chapter 26, you can read about what Jesus told Paul to teach in Acts 26 verses 15 through 18. And in verses 17 and 18, Jesus told Paul, I want you to go proclaim the forgiveness of sins to people. 
So we're proclaiming that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. That's the message that Jesus sent Paul to preach and that he taught in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, the first Galatian city that he went into. And if you'll notice, the response of the people was this. Paul, come back and tell us more about grace. We've never heard this before. Will you please come back next week or next Sabbath and tell us more about the gospel of grace? Because all we've heard about is the law of Moses. And you're telling us something about this Jesus person who went to a cross, who died for all of our sins. And through him, by faith, we received complete, total forgiveness. And we're made 100% righteous before God. Paul, we've never heard this message before. Will you come back? So Paul comes back the next week. And the Bible says in Acts 13 that nearly the whole city turned out to hear Paul preach. And what does this tell us? That people who hear about grace get so excited about grace that they go get their family and their neighbors and their friends to say, you got to come back and hear this message. Didn't matter who was delivering it. It could have been Peter. could have been John. It could have been Ralph. That's irrelevant. It's the message. But people get so excited about the message, they want other people to come hear it. But in Galatia here, they responded to the gospel of grace in Acts 13 with excitement. And they were so excited about the gospel of grace that they invited nearly the whole town to come hear about it the next week. Somewhere along the way, the Judaizers came in. Paul left the cities of Galatia. They were no longer excited about grace. They were bewitched by these teachers from Jerusalem. Wow, these guys are something special. These guys are right from Jerusalem. And these, these are people who know, they know the word. And they're telling us that Paul is wrong. And suddenly the joy that they once had experienced when they heard the gospel of grace, the joy that moved them to evangelism when they first heard the gospel of grace, has now disappeared from the cities of Galatia. And Paul writes a letter to the Galatians. And he asks them a question. What happened? Who came in? Who tricked you? Who bewitched you? Who told you the cross wasn't enough? Who told you the crucifixion wasn't enough? Who told you grace wasn't enough? Who bewitched you? Who, who tricked you? And Galatians 3.1, it says, You foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? Wasn't Jesus portrayed as crucified right before your very eyes? Paul's constantly pointing people to the cross. We're going to pick up there next week. And remember, we're talking about the breastplate of righteousness. Before we can really understand what the breastplate of righteousness is, I've got to understand what righteousness is, especially within this religious culture that we live in. 